Let me read Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You can have a seat. Let's get started uh, looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And I want to start with this question, a very important question, very, very uh, vital for this season. <clears throat> Who's put up their Christmas lights yet? Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am for lights. I am pro lights, okay? Every house, in my opinion, should have simple and classy lights during Christmas, okay? <laughs> I love the ambiance it creates in the neighborhood. When I drive down my, my street, I, my house is at the end of a dead-end street, you know, and so all the houses that have lights, and I drive down the street on, on a... You know, and now it's like 5.10, you know, in the evening or whatever. It's already dark and all the lights are on. I love the ambiance. I love the ambiance it creates in the city as you drive around. And I try to do my part every year putting up Christmas lights. Now, sometime around Thanksgiving when the, when the weather is nice, right? You want to find that day close to Thanksgiving when the weather is decently good to climb up on the roof and put the lights up and set, set them up. And, and I want to settle something this morning, it's okay for you to put up your Christmas lights outside before Thanksgiving if there's a nice day and there doesn't look like there's going to be a nice day after Thanksgiving. It's okay to do that. It is not okay to turn them on before Thanksgiving, okay? I just want to make that clear. That way everyone knows. I think that's somewhere in Leviticus. I'm not sure. So, so my house, though, is a raised ranch. And so the, the garage is in the basement, and uh, over the garage, the, the house kind of peaks up. If you've been to my house, you know what I, what I mean. And so even though it's a one-story house, uh, the peak over the garage ends up being maybe 30 to 40 feet from the pavement of the driveway. And so when I'm putting up lights, it's kind of a task to get the lights all the way up there. You know, I'm kind of doing the scooch along, you know, army crawl along, and like, you know, and my kid, my, my Amanda said, sent Josie out this year and said, hey, go outside. Uh, I want someone to be out there if dad falls off the roof. Like, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what she's going to do, you know, just witness, you know, his demise. I don't know. But um, it's, it's a, it, it takes a little bit of work and it's kind of a, a scary deal. And a year or two ago, I was hanging up the lights as I've done in the past. And I've got kind of a system. I know where the strands need to go and how they fit on the roof. And so I started on the far end from where the plug is. And I started to put, hang up all the lights and put the little clips on the, on the, uh, the gutter or on the side of the shingles or, or whatever. And and I get all the way along, and I go all the way up the peak, and I go all the way down and around the corner, and I get to the end where you're going to plug it in, and I realize that in my hand is the female side and not the male side of the lights, right? The, the, the side that gets plugged into, not the side that plugs into the wall. I've hung them all up where they're supposed to go in completely backwards order. 
I started with the end instead of the beginning and put it backwards. It turns out it's not only important to have Christmas lights, it's not only important to put up your Christmas lights, it's also important to put up your Christmas lights in the right way so that you can plug them in, right? They're kind of worthless when the sun goes down if they don't light up. And I think that this idea of putting the most important things in the right order, putting things in the right order so that the most important things are first, I think is true for life at Christmas, right? This is true because sometimes the hustle and bustle and getting all the gifts and making all the food and doing all the things that you're supposed to do around Christmas can become so important to us and that we can miss the most important things. We can miss the reason you're even doing all of that stuff in the first place. We end up having all the lights up, but lacking what is truly glorious, what is truly wonderful, because we've put the first things last and we've put the last things first. And today as we start Advent, this Advent series, and, and Advent is simply, it just means uh, the, the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And, and Jesus' birth for Christians and really for all of human history is the most notable arrival ever. So this year as we look at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' instructive example of, of prayer to his disciples. And if you're like me, you, you'd want to pray more and to pray more deeply and to pray more significantly and to have that be a priority in your life. But so as we look at Matthew 6, 9, we see Jesus not merely giving us some words to repeat as we start praying, but demonstrating where all prayer has to be plugged in. He's demonstrating to us, this is the thing that must come first if your prayer is going to be plugged in Light up. It's the foundational principle, not only for prayer, but as we're going to see, it's the foundational principle for his advent and for our lives. And this foundational thing is this, God's glory. You see, Jesus came to glorify God. That's why he came. That is the foundational principle of his life. And it's God's glory that is the foundational principle for the whole Christian existence. So I want to look at that this morning as I want to look at how glorifying God is foundational for, for each of these things. For prayer, for Jesus and his advent, and also for our lives. So let's start by examining this first verse of the Lord's Prayer. It says this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now notice first that Jesus is telling us, isn't telling us rather, to pray these exact words. It may not be bad to do so at times, to repeat the Lord's prayer, but that's not his point. He says pray then like this. He doesn't say pray this, 
pray then like this. His point here in the Lord's Prayer is to instruct us on how we ought to go about praying. And he starts with who we are addressing and how we ought to be oriented towards the one we are addressing. And straight away, what we see in the prayer is that it is a conversation with a personal and sovereign God. He says, Our Father... In heaven, consider God as Father. The impact of this phrase is largely lost on us today. We talk about God, uh, Jesus as being our buddy and our friend and our homeboy. And in some ways, I suppose those things are true. But for the disciples, they may have never, ever heard anyone refer to God as Father before. Jesus does it in this moment. When you go back through the Old Testament, there are very few instances where it uses, or I should say there are a few instances where it uses fatherhood as an analogy for God, but never, never does it address God as father. No one calls God their father. And yet, Jesus isn't saying my father. He's not saying my father in heaven. He's saying our father in heaven. He's not just saying God's my father. He's saying God is your father if you're one of my disciples. We understand. We need to understand the immensity of that reality that that he's calling God our father in relationship to Jesus' next words in heaven. You see, Jesus isn't, isn't GPS tracking God, like, okay, this is where God is. I mean, we know that God is um, omnipresent, right? He's, he's everywhere. Rather, this is about his authority. Jesus wants us to understand that our Father, our Father is an all-powerful Father who is in control of everything. He is sovereign over all of creation. You see, rightly understanding who it is we're addressing changes our whole frame of mind to prayer, right? God is our Father. He really does care about what I'm about to say because He is my Father. And God is in heaven. He really is in control. I'm not talking to someone who lacks the ability to do something about what I'm about to say. Now, not all of us have had great examples of fathers In our lives, not all of us have been great examples of fathers. But as a kid, humbly comes to their dad, asking them or telling them what they want for Christmas, knowing their dad loves them, knowing their dad has the ability to get what they want. We approach our Heavenly Father humbly, but boldly, knowing his power and his ability and his knowledge that he knows ultimately what is best for us, better than we know. Sometimes my kids ask me for something for Christmas or otherwise, and I know that's actually not what's best for them, right? They don't know that. They just know that they want that thing, but I 
know that. So to our Heavenly Father, though we think we know what's best for us, we think we know, we come to Him and we ask boldly, yet humbly, and He answers with love. What's ultimately the best. And so we come then, knowing who we are addressing in prayer, we come to the first petition in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Now that's a phrase that you probably only use, I mean hallowed is probably a word you only use when you recite the Lord's Prayer, right? I don't, I don't think a lot of people are walking around going like hallowed, you know? Hallowed, it's not happening, you know? It's like hark, that's the old word you only use during Advent when you sing hark the herald angel. No one's going around going Hark, these Christmas lights are great, you know. It's not, it's not a deal. But, but we use, it's used here, and so we got to know what, what's Jesus saying. And hallowed isn't, it's just a word that just means holy. It means holy. And, and again, holy is probably not a word you use a lot either in your life outside of church. Holy in the Bible means set apart, something that is, that is different. It's, it's set apart from everything else. It's not common. It's holy, name. Name, the word, the word name in this sentence biblically is a reference to the truth about who someone is, their character, and what they've done, their conduct. And so when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, it's not a prayer that God would become holy in who he is and what he's done. Because Jesus knows that God already is holy. God is totally different than us. He's perfect. He's pure. He's without fault and blemish. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can pray to increase God's holiness. It's 100%. All the time. Always. Jesus is praying that God would be known and seen in all the holiness that defines his character and his actions. That nothing that we would do or say would diminish, reduce, or despise God and his holiness. That's what he's praying. And so the point here is this. A right heart in prayer is a heart that wants God to be glorified above all else. You want to know how your heart should be positioned when you come into prayer? Ideally, your heart should be one that wants God to be glorified first and foremost. And so Jesus starts his prayer by pointing us to the one we're praying to. And then by saying, here is how we ought to pray as we start to get our heart right, pointed to God and his glory. You can pray all the prayers that you want, but if you don't start there, you've put the lights up backwards. We must start at the source, and the source is a holy God. But friends, we don't always get this right, do we? And perhaps none of us ever totally get this right. Perhaps I've never gone to God in prayer 100% caring about His Glory above myself, right? I don't know if you guys are like me. Selfish, self-centered, arrogant, prideful. Maybe you guys have figured it out. I haven't. 
And so how do we, in our unholiness, approach a holy God? How are we, how are our prayers not invalidated by this deficiency? Enter Jesus. If you remember in Luke 2, if you're familiar with the story, after Jesus is born, the angels come and they appear to the shepherds in the field, right? And what, what happens? They tell them that they have good news for them and they tell them where they can find Jesus. And then it says they... It says this, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, the angels declare two things at Jesus' advent. First, they declare that Jesus' coming is about God's glory. That's why he came. This event, the birth of Jesus, is reason to declare glory to God in the highest. This is the greatest demonstration of God's glory that there ever will be. That God would come in the flesh and live among us. Show his character. Show his conduct and how holy he is. Walking right beside us. Second, this is for those to whom he is pleased or on whom his favor rests, I believe is a more clear and accurate translation. Jesus has come to make a way for peace, that is peace with God, to reconcile these sinners back to God because of God's grace first and foremost. And that's critical. God's favor rests on them first And then there is peace. God's grace is on them first. And then there is peace with God. There's something here we need to understand. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to glorify God. It's bad news. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself, by yourself, on your own power to glorify God. God, no amount of good deeds, no amount of right words will suffice. No matter how hard we work, if it's to earn God's grace or to produce God's glory by our own power, we are failing to understand just how holy God is. Inevitably, if it's about our effort in doing that, then it's not about God's glory. It's about our glory. Inevitably... If I believe that I can produce God's grace for me and I can produce God's glory by my works and my effort, I have the lights strung up backwards. And there's no power for me to plug that into because I am not sufficient. Friends, don't hang these Christmas lights up the wrong way. Even in our prayer, the Bible says that Jesus mediates for us to God. It starts with the unmerited favor through Christ that the angels have announced, which brings us into peace with God so that we can then approach him in prayer. It's only by Christ's holiness for us that we can approach a holy God. And all of that, all of that, 
all of what Christ, what God did through Christ for us, that glorifies God. That glorifies God that an unholy people could be made holy through the blood of Christ and approach him in love and gratitude. Friends, if we get if we get that backwards, we may call ourselves Christian, but friends, we lack Christ. And so that brings us to this final point that this is also the foundational principle for our own lives. It's not just the foundational principle for prayer or for Jesus' coming. It's also for our lives. I love the Westminster Catechism. The first question, it says this, and this is part of what our New City Catechism that we talk about every week is based off of. But Westminster Catechism says this in the first question, what's the chief end of man? That's the question. And the answer is this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do we believe that our primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy our Father in heaven? Do you believe that that's your primary purpose? That that there's nothing better or greater than that? For many, even Christians, that whole phrase, that whole sentence, that whole answer is confusing. It doesn't make sense. You hear it and you think, yeah, that that sounds like something I would read in the Bible, so that must be the right answer. But in your heart, you're going like, "Ah, I I don't know that I want to buy into that. And functionally in our lives, I think what would often be the answer to the question, what's the chief end of man? Functionally, if you look at our lives and you, you say, well, Cody, how is Cody living? And let's allow his life to answer this question. I think usually the answer would be something like to believe in God and enjoy a happy life. But that's the chief end of man. You see, essentially the logic is this. If it's all about God, then it's not about me. And if it's not about me, how could I enjoy it? But this is like spending your life stringing up lights, your whole life crawling along the roof of life, stringing them up and to get to the end and find out you have not true life because you've put them up backwards. when we get the order correct, when we demote everything else in our life below God, only then can we have true enjoyment and satisfaction no matter the circumstances. I want to share with you about someone. Uh, you, may, you may have heard the name before, um, William Wilberforce. He was born in 1759, and he came from a wealthy family. He, he didn't do uh, much, but... What pleased himself early in life. So probably about his mid-twenties. On a whim at 21, he ran for a seat in the British Parliament and won. It was a joke. He just did it for fun because he had nothing else to do because he didn't need to work because he had all the money he needed. And he won. And he ended up in the British Parliament having a seat for 50 years. Five years later, five years after being elected... God took his rightful seat in William Wilberforce's heart and life. What Wilberforce called the great change took place in him. 
And in 1787, Wilberforce was convicted that though the bulk of Britain called themselves Christian, their conduct was anything but Christ-like. And it was most apparently seen in the reality of the slave trade that was happening. It became his life's mission to see slavery abolished and the morals and the ethics of his country reshaped under Christ. What was Wilberforce's guiding principle in this effort, do you think? Wilberforce would say that the problem with the bulk of Christians is that they judge the guilt of an action by how injurious it is to society. And on the face, that sounds good because sin does hurt people, right? And so we shouldn't sin because that hurts people. But Wilberforce would say that this gets it the order wrong, that that strings the lights backwards, that it should be judged foremost... The guilt of an action should be judged foremost by how offensive it is to God, not other people. It's what he called reverence for the divine majesty, or what we would say like this, hallowed be your name. It's what Psalms 1, 11, 10 calls the beginning of wisdom. And without that wisdom, what is good or bad, what is right or wrong, what is beneficial or injurious would get all confused. We'd be pursuing one end and we'd end up with a different one. Without that wisdom, there would be no deep and abiding good. Without that wisdom... No deep and abiding good could be done in us, in our community, or in society, or in the world. It is what he called the grand governing maxim of all of life. And that is the supremacy of God's glory in every single thing. That, if that was placed first... The trickle-down would benefit everything and everyone. But if some lesser good was placed first, it would not only dishonor God's name, but it would be less good for everything else. That was the foundational principle that allowed him to be known, not just as a Christian, but as one of those Christians, when everyone said, if you say that and you do that, it is political suicide. You will lose all your friends. You will lose your position. You will lose everything. And yet he did it. It was that foundational principle that led him to give away at least a fourth of his income every single year for the rest of his life. And oftentimes more money than he made that year. It was that foundational principle that kept him pushing for 20 years. For 20 years! Before even, before even the buying and selling of human beings would end. 20 years, every year, from 1787 to 1807, he would stand before his peers and he would say, we need to end this. And oftentimes he would be the only person standing. And yet he knew Despite what everyone said, 
This is what glorifies God. And I will do this. I will drive for this. I will pursue this. Because it honors God. Hallowed be your name. Friends, we struggle to stay 20 minutes in a situation where everyone else agrees, disagrees with us. We struggle to spend 20 minutes in a situation where all of our peers might be whispering things about us behind our back. Wilberforce stood for 20 years. And finally, finally, with Wilberforce in tears, it was passed that they would no longer buy and sell human beings. And yet, slavery remained. And for another 26 years, Wilberforce worked. For 26 more years, after the last 20, he continued to work. And three days before he died, slavery was abolished in Great Britain. And it would send a tidal wave through the world that would abolish it in all sorts of places. Friends, friends, three days before he died and saw the glory of God in its fullness for himself, he saw a little bit of the glory of God happen in his country. Oh, that we would have a view of the glory of God that Wilberforce had. Just a, just a slice of it in our lives. What trifles in life keep us distracted from the reality of the divine majesty? What lesser goods do we keep pursuing rather than the one true good? Oh, that we would pray, hallowed be your name every single day. If we have nothing else, but he is glorified, that is good. That is good. When we place something other than God's glory as the foundational principle for our lives, then the other elements of our lives will, will inevitably not work how they ought to work. If God is not your most important relationship, then all your other relationships will suffer. If God's not the most important purpose in your life, then you will spin your wheels doing all sorts of other purposes. If God is not the most important, God's glory. It's not number one. Then everything else, it just won't matter. The lights may be up, but they're not going to work how they ought. How then, friends, can we make glorifying God the foundational principle of our life? Let me give you just a few possible applications. First is this, man, you've got to pray for it. You have to actually get on your knees and pray, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name in my life and in my heart. It is not a work that we do. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us through Christ. And so if we are not praying for it, it will not happen. You cannot work it into your life. And we would pray, not just individually, but as this prayer starts, our, that we would pray communally, together. That God would be glorified, not only in each of us individually, but in our church, in our city, 
in our country, around the world. The second thing that I would implore you to consider is this. Be holy. Be holy as God is holy. Be holy as Christ is holy. That's what we're commanded. Because of what God has done for us through Christ, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to reflect God to the world and to reflect God in the world just as Wilberforce did. Whereas our efforts alone merely produce self-righteousness, but by faith in Christ, our efforts can produce holiness instead. And our holiness helps to bring God into focus for those around us. Our holiness points people to the God who's produced that holiness in us. Some may wonder... Well, that all sounds well and good, but frankly, I'd rather be happy than holy. I thought this thing was about being happy, having the good life, living my best life now. I thought that's what it was about. Doesn't holiness mean that you've got to turn down fun? I think this is a misconception. When the Holy Spirit does his work in you, you begin to experience life in Christ that is satisfying in deeper and more resilient ways than you thought possible. And you begin to see that your sins that you once thought were fun are actually just really poor, unsatisfying replacements for the glory of God in your life. Glorifying God is not only compatible with true joy and enjoyment for us, it's actually the only place we can actually find it. As one pastor put it, we're called to enjoy everything in Christ and to enjoy Christ in everything. That is the Christian life. To enjoy everything in Christ and enjoy Christ in everything. Finally, I would say this. If you're not yet a believer, friends, don't be satisfied with merely throwing lights up on the house of your life. Don't be okay with a version that, of Christmas that lacks power and light and life. Would you seek this Christmas to look To the arrival of Jesus, not just the first time, but the arrival of Christ and his spirit in you. Would you pray for it? Would you seek it? Jesus says in John 6, he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus' promise. Think about this. Jesus came not to do his will, but the will of the Father. He came not to glorify himself, but Jesus came to glorify God. Because that was the foundational principle of his life. Because he was so incredibly resolute in that purpose. His life was so fully plugged into that powerful truth that it grounded him in a life of holiness and love and sacrifice and wisdom and joy and healing and all the good things. And all those things are great. And all those things are to be pursued and desired. But they cannot shine as they ought if our lives aren't plugged into glorifying God 
first and foremost. They are the wonderful byproduct, the light that comes from life in Christ. And so as we approach Christmas and as we approach God in prayer, let us start with that foundational principle, that foundational petition, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name.